I'm Andrew, this is Tammy, and it has been so much fun to teach through this series. We are calling this series The Big Picture, experiencing the whole story of the Bible. So important for us to understand the larger context, so as we learn how to study the Bible, especially an inductive Bible study, which we'll learn as a whole church in the services after the first of the year, that we'll understand the context so we'll be able to rightly divide or understand or interpret God's word. Every once in a while during this series, we have a friend named Carl, and Carl needs to make an appearance this morning, so just a second. <laughs> They're excited about Carl. You see, Carl's kind of a big deal because he's really a mega nerd, and I, I am that, and I love talking about controversial things. So I brought some notes here so I can make sure I stay on track because Andrew didn't give me very many minutes here. So here's the deal. We just got done talking about the resurrection, and the resurrection's a really big deal. The resurrection is Jesus rising from the dead. And if he isn't risen, then we're in big trouble. There are five objections that I found in my study this week that tell me that there's a problem, that people don't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So let's go through these one at a time real quick, shall we? The naturalistic objection. It's really simple. These are the people that they don't think that miracles exist. Therefore, they decide, well, dead people don't rise. Therefore, this couldn't have happened. They don't look at the evidence. But there is actually evidence that you can look at. So they challenge this. We could challenge this objection. There's things that we could do. What can we do? Well, we could point to intelligent design. Have you ever seen intelligent design in the world? There's got to be a designer. There's got to be a creator. It's one of the ways you could challenge this idea. seems like a really simple one to me. So I think we're going we're gonna to move on. We're going to move on. The swoon theory. The swoon theory. Have you heard of this one? I love the swoon theory. It's been around for centuries. Jesus faked his death. He really wasn't dead. He was either partly dead or mostly dead, but not all dead. <laughs> and he used some kind of mixture of drugs. Maybe he got it from Luke, the physician. <laughs> and then someone paid Pilate to take his, take his body down, and he wasn't really dead. And then he was running around, convincing everybody he was Messiah, and then he actually rose from the dead. Do you know who made this really famous? The Da Vinci Code. Have you seen that movie? Or read that book? It's a thing. But it's not true. You see... We know that Jesus really died. In fact, a journal that I found of the American Medical Association had a, an article that talked about the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead. That's what they said. So I believe it. And one of the proofs? Spear through the heart. Pericardial sac. Look at me knowing stuff. That water coming out. Yeah, that proves that he's dead. Number three, let's move fast. Lying or deceived disciples. They were all deceived. Bless their hearts. This is one of the oldest ones. You know, this goes all the way back. Tammy, can you read this scripture for us? Tell, tell, show us where, how far this goes back. Matthew 28, go ahead. 
some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. Keep reading. And, then, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't think so. This earliest objection. Then there's other people that pile on this one. You know what they do? This guy, James Cameron. Have you heard of him before? Yeah. Discovery Channel. I don't know what this is. They did a... A story called, the, uh, it was a show called The Lost Tomb of Jesus. They were like pretending to all like, know a bunch of stuff. And they said, oh, we found, the, they found these Jesus and Mary and Joseph on these bone boxes. And surely he must not be dead then. See, he died and then these are his bone boxes. But they kind of forgot that, well, Jesus is actually a really common name in his day like Joe. And well, and then, it, then they found another bone box that said Judah the son of Jesus, and Jesus didn't have any sons, so that kind of shoots that in the foot, I suppose. Number four, everyone had a mass hallucination. I love that one. It's so silly. Why? Because, well, sometimes when we're in grief, we do hallucinate. We think we see a loved one, and we really feel, we feel like we really saw them. But what happens when you've got over 500 people who see Jesus all at the same time? That's what we see in 1 Corinthians so, well, that disproves that. And, you know, Paul, he would have not said, ask, just ask the eyewitnesses. That would really shoot holes in the, in the theory. So, hallucinations, not uncommon. Mass hallucinations, don't happen. Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. Disjuncture. So, let me just skip ahead. Last one. Number five. These were all derived by resurrection myths. This is my favorite. You know why? Because it sounds really true. Here's what's going on. They're saying Jesus actually didn't rise from the dead. This was all quoting an old myth from 1400, uh, 14, let's see, wait a second, 14th century BC. So that's 1400 years before Christ. And there's this Roman God. And so they say that this Roman God, Mithras, and, and he... They said, well, uh, let's get it right here. They said that he was born of a virgin on December 25th, and he had 12 disciples, and he even had to sacrificially die only to raise three days later. Now, wait a second. Maybe this is the real story, except for the fact that even in the second century, Justin Martyr, I don't know if he was a martyr, he just has a name, like that Justin Martyr, he noted this and he said, guys, 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 this is not true. Instead of Christians copying Mithraism, what he said was the Romans are actually altering their beliefs to resemble the Christian teaching. Ha! Justin had it figured out in the second century. It's not a problem. So what's the deal? Well, the truth is that myths don't make martyrs. You don't die for something that isn't true. And all of Jesus' disciples, they just kept falling one after the next, dying for their faith. No one dies for a lie. And so consider yourself educated on how 
to poke holes in those objections about Jesus' resurrection. All right, here's the deal. 1 Corinthians 15 is really clear. If Christ isn't raised, we are to be pitied. This is a deal breaker. If you're a Jesus follower, you believe he rose from the dead. This is so important. We took some minutes to make sure we camped on it today. If you want to study more about this, I can send you the link or links, but there's plenty of stuff. Just Google it. Objections to the resurrection and challenges. But this validates that Jesus is God in human form and Today, we're going to see a little bit about what happens after he's raised. So, housekeeping, there's handouts. We would love for you to take notes. We also have live polling. And so, if you want to scan the QR code or you can download the Polling Everywhere app and you put in the little code AndrewBurchie959. It's just the one that they assigned to me. It's not that great, but there it is right there. And we would love for you to, we got a couple questions today to interact with you. But Tammy, take it away. Okay, so today we are going to be focusing on the book of Acts, which is in the genre of church history. But first, we told you last week that we were also going to dive in and and focus more on the new covenant today. Just like the resurrection being super essential to our faith, thank you, Carl, it is also very important that we understand the new covenant, super, super important. So, in fact, the new covenant contains the main message that the apostles are going to carry forth through the book of Acts that we're going to be focusing on today. It's all about the good news of Jesus. So the New Testament is really the new covenant. Testament meaning covenant. And a covenant is a formal binding agreement, a contract between two parties, if you will, involving promises. The covenant you would know best, perhaps, is marriage, is a covenant. It's just not just a contract, but it has a relational aspect of commitment. So you can think about partnership. So let's compare the two covenants, shall we? Do it, Tammy. I am excited about this. Okay, so we have lots of slides here to help you with this. The old covenant, it was between God and the nation of Israel. And the new covenant is between Jesus and anyone who believes uh, believes in in him as their savior. And so I love John 3, 16. I feel like that really sums up the new covenant. So for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so... Uh, We really need to remember who they're between there. Also, in the Old Covenant, God is promising that he is going to be Israel's God, right? He's going to be there, and he's also going to give them land, this promised land, if they are faithful to him and if they are obedient to keep his laws. In the New Covenant, it is salvation from sin and permanent unbroken relationship with God that we are promised. Okay. For the Old Covenant, Moses is the mediator, In the new covenant, Jesus Christ is the mediator. In the old covenant, it is for Jews. In the new covenant, it is for Jews and non-Jews, which you're going to be hearing the term Gentiles a lot, right? And I think this is really important because most of us do not have a Jewish background. And so we need to realize that we were never under the old covenant. And as non-Jewish or Gentile believers, we've only been under the new covenant. The Old Covenant required continual animal sacrifices, where in the New Covenant, Jesus is the final sacrifice. The Old Covenant needed priests to offer these sacrifices. In the New Covenant, Jesus is our high priest. 
In the old covenant, the sign was circumcision. The new covenant, the sign is baptism and communion. The old covenant was temporary. It was a foreshadowing of what was to come. And in the, the law or the old covenant, it continually showed the people's failure to keep the law. So it made them aware of their need for a savior. It was continually pointing to Jesus. We've been saying all along, everything is pointing to Jesus. So in the new covenant, it was permanent and Jesus was a fulfillment of it all. The old covenant was written on stone and it was about our external behavior. The new covenant is written on our hearts. It is about an eternal, an internal heart change. And so I want to read you from Jeremiah 31. If you guys remember, Jeremiah is a prophet way back before Jesus came and he prophesied this in 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jesus. Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The law was our guardian until Christ came. So it was there to give us some parameters, not us. I shouldn't say us, the Israelites, because we aren't part of that. <clears throat> But after that, after Christ ushered in the new covenant, it's the Holy Spirit that now guides and empowers us. We know you're not going to remember all those things, but we want you to see the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. I think it's really, really important. So we just zoomed in on the main covenants of the Bible um, during this series. And we told you that there are four, and we want to just, just review these really quick. First of all, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And then he makes a national covenant with the people. That's what we've been talking about. The giving of the law, the old covenant at Mount Sinai with Moses and the, the Ten Commandments on the two tablets. And then God makes a covenant with David and says, there's going to be a king that will sit on the throne forever and he will be through your line, your ancestral line, and he will be the son of David. Lastly, and that's the one we're talking about today, Jesus, this new covenant, and who this is with anyone who follows him. At the beginning, when we kicked off this series, we talked about how knowing this big picture of the Bible, this overview, is like looking at the box top of a puzzle, and it gives you that picture of what you are creating, what all these details as you're reading through your Bible are pointing to, right? And so the four covenants, we like to use the analogy that they are like the four corners of the jigsaw puzzle. They are the anchoring points of this whole story. So Jesus actually fulfills all three of those previous covenants before he ushers in this new and final covenant. So with the Abraham covenant, he's from the family of Abraham. And if you guys remember, as part of that covenant, it was that Abraham's family would be used to bless all the people of the earth. And because faith in Jesus is available to all people, he fulfills that covenant. He fulfills the covenant that we were just discussing that came through Moses, the old covenant, because he is the faithful Israelite who was truly able to obey the law, not like the people. He also fulfills the David covenant because he is the king from the line of David. And when he became human, he is God become human, he was able to be the faithful covenant partner that the people were never able to be, that we are never able to be. And so it shows that God is a promise keeper, right? He kept his end of 
of the deal on every one of those covenants. He even actually stepped down and kept our end of the deal that we were never able to fulfill. And there was a really great Bible project video on covenants that we showed that we, I don't know if we showed it, but it's been on our website. And so if you would like to check it out, we just want to remind you that it's there. Right. So without further ado, let's find the book of Acts on our bookshelf. But I I think you've got a memory challenge first. Okay. So I've been talking about these all along that if you're ready for this, I think it's really great that we memorize some of these things so that we really can grasp the whole picture of the Bible. So I'm taking a chance here and I want to know if there is any volunteer I can pull that would like to say the genres that we've been going over. So I know you have to be brave. But it's not about being perfect or polished. Is there anybody, anyone, that would be willing to step up and try to say the genres? Come on, be brave, be brave. Oh, front row. (laughs) I have someone ready if no one will do it, but (laughs) do you want to come up? (laughs) <laughs> okay, I mean my, my daughter, who's uh, been at college, <laughs> so she has not been here. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I'm letting you know that we have two more coming. We're going to be doing kingdoms, and we're going to be doing the timeline, the main events of the timeline. And so those are the next two weeks. We're trying to model that we can do this, right? And so anyway, I know that those, those are coming, and I'm looking for volunteers. So please let me know if you're willing. There is a prize that we have for this. Ooh. We get a prize. <laughs> okay. So we created a slide. If it's easy, you can turn around and look at these. And they, if you notice, we took away the nameplates. So you don't have those clues as to what they are. Okay. But this is the whole, these are all the books of the Bible. And do you remember the chant that we did for the Old Testament? Okay. I'm just going over this this morning. <laughs> so the chant for the Old Testament was 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. So the first five are the law or the Torah. And then the next 12 are um, all history books. Then the next five are poetry books, including like Psalms and Proverbs. Yeah. Um, the next five are the major prophets. So the bigger ones of the prophecy books of the Bible. And then the last 12 are the minor prophets for the Old Testament. Yes. <laughs> so hopefully you're quizzing yourself too. You need to be trying this too. Okay. What about the New Testament? Okay. The New Testament chant we have is four one twenty one one. So the first four are the Gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Next one is Acts, which is another like church history book. And then twenty one are all of Paul's letters. Well, not all Paul's not all Paul, letters. All the letters. <laughs> um, and then the last is Revelation, which is a prophecy book. Let's see. Good job. Okay, you get a prize. You can pick out a CD or a coffee. So either take the coffee cup or the CD. They are right there on the piano. You can have your choice. So we will transition up here to the bookshelf. And this is the book of Acts. It is the book that, where we learn church history. And that's our genre Today, but Acts is a shortened name, isn't it, Tammy? Tell us about what the, the real name is. So the whole full title is Acts of the Apostles. And so this book is about the establishment of the early church and uh, God working through the apostles, his sent ones. 
And this was written by who? So last week we talked about this. We already told you that there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that Luke wrote one of them, the book of Luke, but he also wrote Acts. And so uh, it's actually a unified two-volume work, Luke-Acts. And so we're going to show you a blown up version of our timeline because the timeline, when we create the whole timeline across the stage, it's like the whole New Testament is in about 100 years and they're all close together. So at this point, we're going to expand it and Tammy will go through the timeline here in a minute with you so you can see how all of the New Testament is happening within about 95 or 100 years maximum. And so volunteers, come on up here. We are going to create a timeline for you. No? Oh, yes? Hear me? Good. Okay, so last week we were crammed over here by the drums, if you were here. And we did that on purpose because we were trying to show you in light of the whole timeline that it's just a little hundred years. But we now have expanded that, so pretend you're zooming in. So come on over. You're going to be here. Okay, so we have five main events for our New Testament. We have Jesus being born, okay? That is year zero. Remember that hinge point between the BC part of our timeline and the AD part of our timeline. Then we have the crucifixion and the resurrection, which happens 30-ish, right, in AD. Right after it, and we're going to talk about that more today, is Pentecost, right? We see the tongues of fire coming on their heads. And then in 70 AD, what you're going to do, Latina was like this, so the temple falls. This is the second temple that had been rebuilt way back in 516 BC, and now it falls, and this is 70 AD. That is destroyed by the Romans. And then at the end, around 95, Serena, do this first with one hand. Can you do that? This is when Revelation is written. We do that symbol just to say, hey, what is going to come? That's what we learn in the book of Revelation. And then the New Testament is completed. And it's done. And this we put at 95 AD or 80, 80 95. It, um, it could have been written earlier. That's probably a late date. But we all want you to see that it's within 100 years that these main events happen. So speaking of the memory challenges, if you don't really know your timeline well, this is a great place to start because there's only five main events. If you can do that, then you can start working on your Old Testament to put the whole thing together. Thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. Great job, you guys. And let me show you one more graph up here that kind of gives you the idea of how that New Testament looks with Jesus being born there. And then he lives for 30 years and he's largely off the map. And his ministry is that little blue box, just three and a half years. And it changes the world. And of course, we have the resurrection, Pentecost, and then the Apostle Paul's ministry, which spans about 20 years. Then the temple's destroyed and revelation. So if you have the app or if you have scanned the QR code, we've got a question for you and I'm going to activate it right now. And the question is this. Oh, there we go. Um, there are two Saul's in the Bible. 
Where would you read about them? Would it be Genesis and Revelation? Would it be 1 Samuel and Acts? Would it be Song of Solomon and 1 Kings? Or would it be the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia? <laughs> you can see what I'm a fan of, right? Are you seeing that on your phones there? Great. Build it up, people. Hmm. Ah. Good job, everybody. We've got about 71% said 1 Samuel and Acts. And if you said that, you would be correct. And yes, someone did vote for the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia. And maybe <laughs> me sitting in the fun. back right now because they're huge C.S. Lewis fans. But So we asked this question. I know this kind of probably seems like a strange question, but we, we liked it because we think it highlights why it's so important to know the whole story of the Bible. Because these Sauls are very different from each other, right? One is a king. One is an apostle. One was in the Old Testament. One was in the New Testament. One lives a thousand years before Jesus. One is here on earth while Jesus is here and even after his resurrection. And so we're going to learn more about one of these Sauls today. So we found, mm, please hold. So we've got this book of Acts, which is right here. How do we subdivide the book of Acts? Simply by using one of the verses in the book of Acts actually gives us a layout of the entire book. Which verse do you think it would be? Yell it out. What verse gives us an overview of the entire book in Acts, if you had to pick one verse? Heard it. Acts 1.8, that's correct. You just thought I'd throw it out there. You just see if anybody would know. <laughs> Acts 1.8, but you will receive power, Jesus says to his followers, when, you, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? So Jesus is giving a commission to his followers saying, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take this good news about the new covenant and go take it everywhere. But you're going to start here in Jerusalem and then it's going to go to Judea and Samaria, the outlying area, and then to the ends of the earth, which you would think of would be like Italy or modern day Spain. So we're going to start and move through these three points. And so we'll start with Acts 1 and 2. So it's really exciting because this is the only week we get to just do one book. And so we're really going to go for it. Yeah, even at the end of Revelation, we'll be doing a little bit more. So let's go. We're going to just go after all these chapters. So in Acts 1 and 2, we see the commissioning that he just talked about, Jesus' Jesus's ascension, and then the coming of the Holy Spirit. Right, Jesus actually appears, like, I, like Carl was saying earlier, to over 500 people at one time. And he does some incredible ministry after he's been raised from the dead. And he gives his disciples really, really convincing proof that he's actually alive with them for 40 days and talking about and teaching about the kingdom of God. And he tells them to stay in Jerusalem until they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he commissioned them, just as that verse we just read says... Before ascending into heaven, he literally just takes off into the sky. Man, that's so cool. And then he says, wait, because when the Holy Spirit comes, then you can go tell the world about this. 
And it's at this point that the disciples, who were the followers of Jesus, now start to be known as the apostles. Okay, so it's a similar term, but apostles specifically means the sent ones. So at this point, they've been commissioned and he is sending them out. Jesus goes up into heaven. They're like this. Angels have to come and say, um, dude, he's not coming back. But he will someday come back in the same way. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. And so then 10 days after that event, they're all gathered up in the upper room, Jesus' followers. And at Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit does come. And Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to indwell his followers. So we have a verse we will read to, to show you that. This is from Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, this upper room. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So this is the birth of the New Testament or the New Covenant Church as the Holy Spirit who was promised then comes and dwells in believers. Okay, so the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus is the star of the Gospels, he's actually the star of the whole book. We keep telling you he's the star of the whole Bible. The Holy Spirit is really the star of this book. So this could actually be called the Acts of the Apostles through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, more focus on him than the apostles, right? Just like Jesus, the Holy Spirit has always been there, though. We really want to make that point. It's not that he's just showing up on the scene right now. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would actually empower artisans, prophets, kings, priests, and others to do certain things, but only for a time. And then that Holy Spirit then could be taken away. Yeah, and in the New Testament, now the Holy Spirit lives inside of every believer. He is sealed inside us. He will not be taken away, and he empowers us to live out the gospel. So we found a great short Bible project video to show you about the Holy Spirit. Let's take a couple minutes to watch. If you've ever heard the phrase, the Holy Spirit, and you want to know what it means, where do you start? Well, you have to start on page one of the Bible, where the uncreated world is depicted as this dark, chaotic place. But then above the chaos, God's Spirit is there, hovering, ready to bring about life and order and beauty. Okay, but what is God's Spirit? Yeah, so the Spirit is the way the biblical authors talk about God's personal presence. The Hebrew word is ruach. Ruach. Yeah, you got to clear your throat at the end. So what is it? Well, ruach can refer to a number of different things, but what they all have in common is energy. Energy? How so? So there's an invisible energy that makes the clouds move or the tree branches sway. Right. Wind. So in Hebrew, that's ruach. Okay. Now take a big breath. <sighs> so you feel that inside you. Yeah, the air? Well, specifically the energy, right? The vitality in your body that you get from breathing deeply, that too is ruach. And this is the same word used in the Bible to describe God's personal presence. Just like wind and breath are invisible, God's spirit is invisible. Wind is powerful, and so God's spirit is powerful. And just as breath keeps us alive, so God's spirit sustains all of life. Yeah, Ruach. 
Now, as we continue on in the story of the Bible, we see God's Ruach giving special empowerment to people for specific tasks. The first person in the Bible this happens to is Joseph. God's Spirit enables him to understand and interpret dreams. And then it happens to this guy named Bezalel, and he's an artist. God's Spirit empowers him with wisdom and skills. He's given creative genius to make beautiful things in the tabernacle. And we also see God's Ruach empower a group of people called the prophets. They're able to see what's happening in history from God's point of view. That's exactly right. And here's the problem as the prophets saw it. While God's Ruach had created a really good world, humans have given in to evil. They've unleashed chaos into it through their injustice. A new type of disorder. Yes, and the prophet said the spirit would come, just like in Genesis 1, but now to transform the human heart, to empower people to truly love God and others. How will this new act of God's spirit happen? Well, centuries pass and we are introduced to Jesus. And at the beginning of his mission, there's this beautiful scene where Jesus is being baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. Yeah, the sky opens up and God's spirit comes and rests on him like a bird. This story is saying that God's spirit is empowering Jesus to begin the new creation. And we see this happening when he heals people or forgives their sins. He's creating life where there once was death. Now, Israel's religious leaders oppose Jesus and they eventually have him killed. But even here, God's spirit is at work. The earliest disciples of Jesus, who saw him alive from the dead, said it was God's energizing spirit that raised Jesus. This is the beginning of new creation. Yes, and it's still going. When Jesus appeared to his closest followers, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And soon after that, the spirit powerfully comes on all of his disciples. So that they can become a part of this new creation and share the good news and learn how to live by the energy and influence of God's spirit. And so today, the spirit is still hovering in dark places. Yes, pointing people to Jesus, transforming and empowering them so they can love God and others. And the Christian hope is that the spirit is going to finish the job. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a new humanity, living in a new world that's permeated with God's love and life-giving spirit. Holy Spirit is a big deal. It is part of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And depending upon what church tradition you grew up with, maybe the Holy Spirit is completely a mystery to you, but he's no less God and amazing. So we're going to give you three quick things about the coming of the Holy Spirit, because this is so important. We just want to make sure that we squeeze everything out of it. First of all, number one, God is present with his people. This has always been what he wanted. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. The one who was present with Adam and Eve in the garden and then is now present in this way. And so in the video, we saw wind can represent the Holy Spirit, the Ruach. Isn't that fun to say? Ruach. Say that with me. Ruach. Oh, it's fun, isn't it? Um, Hebrew's fun. The life-giving energy that we see at the creation of the world, the creation of man, and now at the creation of the church as the Holy Spirit shows up. Fire has long represented God's presence in the Bible. We see that on Mount Sinai at the giving of the Ten Commandments and at the dedication of the first temple. And there's some parallels between the giving of the law, the giving of the old covenant, 
And then this establishment of the new covenant at Pentecost. Some really cool stuff. I'm going to Bible nerd out on you for a minute, okay? This is actually stuff that I wasn't even aware of last week. So it's really fun. So some parallels. We're going to go quick, but here we go. So both events, both the giving of the law and... Then this idea of Pentecost, what happens there? Both on mountains. Both events also happened to a newly redeemed or set free people. The birth of an Israelite nation and then the birth of a Christian church. Both events also involved receiving a gift. In the Old Covenant, it was a gift of the Torah, the law. In the New Covenant, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Both events had similar symbols and sounds. Sound is very important. So you have the fire of the Lord's presence and voices. In fact, the Hebrew word for thunder is actually voice or message. So here we have tongues being the voice or the message. And back at Sinai, then that thunderous sound of God's voice speaking, if you will. And these two things happen at exactly the same time on the calendar as well. So how do we know this? Well, Exodus. We have the Passover, and the Israelites leave Egypt after Passover, and 40 days later, they arrive at Sinai. Then Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to see God, and 10 days later, he comes down with the law. That would be 50 days later, right? And the Israelites then, while he's gone, decided to worship a golden calf, breaking the covenant, and 3,000 people died that day. But wait, let's talk about the book of Acts. How does that get completely undone by this better Moses? Well, Jesus dies on Passover as the Passover lamb. 40 days later, he goes up on a mountain and he ascends to heaven to meet with God. 10 days later, the Holy Spirit comes down and 3,000 people are saved. That's pretty cool, huh? I can't take credit for it. I didn't see it myself. I didn't read it from somewhere else, right? So 50 days after sacrificing the Passover lamb, the Israelites receive a covenant from God. 50 days after sacrificing Jesus, our Passover lamb, the Holy Spirit writes the new covenant on believers' hearts. So at Sinai, the law was written by God's finger on the stone tablets. At Pentecost, he writes on the tablets of our heart, the Bible tells us. The Torah attempted to change people from the outside. The Holy Spirit does his work from the inside. And Torah provided God's teachings for the Israelites. The Holy Spirit is the teacher for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. This would have been so obvious to the people that were there. This would have been front and center. To us, it's kind of hidden, but it's really, really fun to see how what God has done before. He says, no, I'm going to make a better covenant. I've got a better way, and this is the new covenant. I was super excited about all that this week, too. (laughs) It was very new to me. Okay, so a few different things we want you to realize are the significance of the the coming of the Holy Spirit. That, for sure. The other thing is that God has a new temple now, okay? So we see, we mentioned the fire. At Sinai, there was also fire at the dedication of the first temple that Solomon created, right? That was was very significant, showing that God's presence was there. Well, here on Pentecost, now the fire is coming and descending on each 
each of the, these believers. And so the tongues of fire at Pentecost is symbolic of God's presence again, but it is showing that we as believers in Christ are now the, the new temple. We have the spirit living inside of us. And we don't have to go to a specific place anymore like the Jerusalem temper, temple to be with God. He is in us now. So super significant there on, on Pentecost. Third thing, God has a new people. The Holy Spirit is now going to empower the church to live out the gospel. And when we say the church, we don't mean a building. We mean these new people now that are following Christ as their Savior and Lord. And so in Acts 2, remember we're on those first two chapters, we see the church gathering together. There's things they are doing. They are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. And the Holy Spirit even empowers them to share everything in common. They sell their property, these their possessions, so that they're able to give to those in need. The Holy Spirit is clearly the star of the show. And so we want to also look at how the Holy Spirit now works to spread the gospel. And it's because we mentioned uh, that the Feast of Pentecost, that there are many people in Jerusalem from several different nations at the time. And I love this because God's timing is always perfect. So Acts 2 verses 5 and 6, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, the sound of these people speaking in their own languages, unknown to them already, we call them tongues, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They're saying, what, how are these backwoods Galileans actually speaking perfectly spoken whatever their native tongue is. Look at this chart right here. And you can see how these are all listed as the peoples that were there. What is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit is seeding the work that he's going to do in the future. He's like, okay, I'm going to have these people encounter Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And then when they go back home after, after the feast... I've got an outpost waiting for the disciples and the apostles and others who will go out, and this is going to help the spread of the gospel. God is so genius! This is amazing! <laughs> really good. I'm glad there's clapping because we're really okay. excited about this. Too. That was one and two. I promise <laughs> we're going to go faster now. Not all 28 <laughs> chapters we're going to talk about. But guys, this is like the, the most important two chapters in the part of the whole Bible. So we wanted to make sure we sat in it. We squeezed all of it out. Now, Acts 3 through 7. We talked about Jerusalem being that starting point for this spreading of the gospel. Let's talk about that in Acts 3 through 7. Okay, so we're using Acts 1 and 8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. So here is where we're going to see the gospel going out and in, in spreading in Jerusalem itself. The, so the first book of Acts focus, focuses mostly on Peter. He's our star, right? We'll see Paul later. This is Peter. And we're also going to see James and John too. Now those might be familiar names to you because they're the three disciples that were in Jesus' inner circle of the 12. Yeah, so that's the first half of Acts. Um, and then... We also saw that with the coming of the Holy Spirit that the followers of Christ are now the new temple, right? I already just went over that. So here we're going to see the believers start doing things that would have traditionally been associated with the Jerusalem temple. Things like being very generous, healings. And so what this was highlighting now is that this new temple of Jesus's community is where people encounter God's generosity and healing presence. They are living out what the temple was always supposed to be because God is with them. I love that. But at the end of this section, 
Stephen, a deacon in the church, is the first Christian martyr. And a Pharisee named Saul is there holding the jackets while others are throwing stones to kill him. And the persecution of the church, of God's people, gets really intense, but it actually pushes the message out and it actually spreads the gospel. Persecution spreads the gospel. Okay, moving on. We said we'd go quick. Now we're in Acts 8 through 12, and this is now that middle section. So we talked about Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, ends of the earth. Now it's Judea and Samaria. And so it's going to be moving here um, from Jerusalem, uh, which is city evangelism, now to national evangelism. So Judea is that surrounding area, that province that Jerusalem is in, and Samaria is that northern province from there. Um, and so up until this point, it's, always, it's been about Jewish evangelism. Now we're going to be in a transition period, and then it's eventually going to move to Gentile evangelism. The Samaritans. We read quite a bit about the Samaritans and the Jews not getting along in the Gospels. And what's happening here is the Samaritans are half Jewish. They were from those northern tribes in what was called the Kingdom of Israel, and yet they have intermarried into the other nations. And so there's a lot of animosity between Jews and Samaritans. So in this middle section here of Acts, we see Philip, who's also a deacon from the Jerusalem church. He is going to go into Samaria and share the gospel, and he starts to see these half-Jews come to Christ. Philip also shares the gospel with a God-fearing Ethiopian who's coming back from the feast in Jerusalem, an Ethiopian eunuch. And so this is another evidence that this gospel is not just for Jewish people, but it's beginning to spread to others. And then we see two major plot twists in the book of Acts. Saul, who is the jacket holder of the people that threw stones at, at Stephen. Well, he's an enemy of Christians and one of the biggest persecutors of the church. He actually encounters Jesus on the road in Acts 9 and he comes to Christ and he's this Jesus calls him an apostle, one who's sent to bring the kingdom culture to wherever he goes. And we have a Lego picture from our <laughs> Lego projects, of course, because this was a very significant event. And so we have Austin Gerbert, who shows Paul being blinded by Jesus on the, the road to Damascus. We find this in Acts 9. And just a shout out, Austin is on staff for our kids ministry yeah. here. And so if you see him, slap a high five, say, nice work on the Legos there, Austin. But by the way, Saul's name was not changed to Paul at his conversion. This is a very common misconception. And I think it's because we think about how Jesus has changed names, like he changed Simon's to Peter's, right? We saw that in the Gospels. So, but Paul is the Roman version name of Saul. And he starts going by that when he starts ministering more and more to the Gentiles. And so in one of Paul's letters that we're going to actually study next week when we talk about the letters, he talks about how he wants to be all things to all people in order to save some. And so this is one of those strategies that he was doing, trying to become more relatable to the Gentiles by going by that Roman name. So if you hear Saul and Paul, same guy. So Saul's conversion over to Christianity is the first plot twist. The second plot twist involves our friend Peter, who's sitting on the roof and he has this vision and God begins to explain to him, this gospel's not just for Jewish people, but for all nations. 
But God leads Peter to Cornelius. He is a Gentile Roman centurion. And Cornelius and his family, they all come to faith in Jesus. They even receive the Holy Spirit. So Acts marks the first time that non-Jewish people are actually considered part of God's family. A really big deal. Huge. Because most of us are not Jewish. We no. are Gentiles, We're right? Not. We're not. <laughs> right? We are not. And so we would not be forgiven. We would be living in sin. We would not have this restored eternal relationship with God if the gospel of Christ hadn't been offered to us. And so I just want to pause for a minute and really let that sink in. Because thank you, Lord, for your love for all people. That includes us, that we were allowed to receive the gospel. So in this middle section in Judea and Samaria, we see the good news is surprisingly for those Jews who had been considered outsiders or even enemies like the Samaritans. It's gone to a God-fearing Ethiopian. It's gone to half-Jewish people in the Samaritans. It's gone to a persecutor of Christians in Saul and people who are not completely non-Jewish, and that is Gentiles like the centurion in Acts 10. And the Holy Spirit has confirmed every single time that these people have received the good news through miracles and, and God's Spirit coming upon them. And I think it's interesting that all of these seem to be enemies of a certain degree. Beginning to change these Jewish boys' minds about this gospel being much broader, even loving your enemies. So, well, last section. Because lunch, I'm sure, is on your mind. <laughs> Acts 13 through 18, this huge chunk. Paul and his missionary journeys to plant churches. Yeah, so the whole second half of Acts here now is going to focus on the gospel now going to the ends of the earth. And we have to realize in that day and age, it's all the Roman Empire, right? It was That was the known earth, at the, the known world at the time. So the good news is no longer in one nation. It is actually going cross-cultural now. And Saul, who is now, we're probably going to call him the Apostle Paul, is the focus of these chapters. And he carries the gospel to Jews, but even more so to the Gentiles on these missionary journeys. So on these journeys, he plants churches, he makes disciples, he develops leaders, he appoints elders to lead new churches. And I love the fact that he always goes to the Jewish synagogue or the Jewish people first to tell them of their Messiah before then moving on to the rest of the nations. So I do have one more fun question for you to involve yourself with, and it's this one. Paul took journeys... How many do we read about in the book of Acts? Is it three ministry trips and one trip to Rome? Is it only one long trip to Rome? Is it zero? He only sent others out and lived in Rome. Or 26, most of his trips, were to get pizza from Roman restaurants. <laughs> you could tell what I was in the mood for when I was putting this poll together. I love pizza. All right. Let's see what the responses look like here. Hmm, yeah, this is a smart group. 94%, it is three ministry trips and one trip to Rome that we read about here. That is true. <laughs> Thanks for playing. That was fun. And Paul does not travel alone, but he has several ministry partners. And so some of them are Barnabas, John Mark. He actually wrote the book of Mark mm -hmm. that we talked about last week. Silas, Luke, who wrote the book of Luke. And this one that we're studying right now, Acts, and also Timothy. 
So we've got a few maps here. We're not going to spend a long time on them, but we just want to show you kind of where Paul went on these journeys because he is he is literally trying to get to the ends of the earth. On this first missionary journey, he goes out from the church at Antioch. This is the place where Christians are first called Christians, little Jesus imitators with Barnabas and John Mark. There are two years on the road, 1,500 miles traveled over 53 days. That's a long time. It's a long time. Yeah, it goes to Cyprus and then up into the region of Galatia. Hmm, maybe you're going to hear about more, that more next week, right? Paul travels to Jerusalem between the first and the second missionary journeys for what becomes known as the Jerusalem Council. This is where the apostles, they are gathering and they decide that circumcision is not necessary for these Gentile Christians. And this is also a big deal because they are making the statement that Gentiles do not have to become Jewish in order to become Christians. They are saying we are going to be following the new covenant, not the old covenant. It's the biggest deal for the guys, let's be honest. Okay, second missionary journey. Once again, in that Mediterranean area, 100 days traveling, about 3,000 miles traveled. I mean, Paul is logging the miles. He returns to Galatia. He goes further west to an area known as Asia Minor, then into Macedonia, and on into Greece, into the Greek peninsula. So he spends time in places like Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, and Ephesus. We read Letters to those churches. Letters are coming next week. He travels to similar places on his third missionary journey and that he did on his second. Very, very similar with those. After being arrested, Paul, who's a Roman citizen, actually appeals to have his case go before Caesar. So eventually he's sent to Rome. And it is not an easy journey. He's actually shipwrecked on this journey, but he does make it to Rome, which of course is the capital city of the empire. And there he is kept under house arrest. Luke is with him. And so Luke is writing all this down. That's why we know about it. And just for, just for fun, let's look at how much would it cost for these four trips, travel costs in modern day money. Go ahead and go to the next slide. All four journeys, if you do the math, and I won't explain to you right now, it's on the screen, but 181 thousand dollars of travel costs. How does Paul do this? He's a tent maker, so he's working along the way. By the way, this doesn't count for the lodging that he probably had for 18 months in Corinth and three years in Ephesus. And so there's a lot of money either being given by the churches, but Paul's also even collecting money for the Jerusalem church and for, uh, for famine relief. And so this is a lot of investment. And so Paul's spending a lot of time in jail preaching about Jesus. We got a Lego project. Oh, Oliver Sherba. You just got to love that smile. <laughs> Paul in the prison wagon going off. And uh, on the surface, when Paul goes to prison, it looks like it's going to slow down the gospel. But what happens is it gives him time to write the letters that we'll talk about next week. Those letters far outlast as far as his legacy in, in creating holy scripture for us, which is beautiful. So to summarize the book of Acts, as we talked about a lot here, we have seen that Jesus is actually continuing his ministry through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And he spreads the gospel, the gospel through the apostles, first in Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. If you can remember those key things, those are the key concepts of Acts. But next week, when we study the letters, those 21 blue books over there on the bookshelf, we're going to see the new church wrestle with how do I truly live out this gospel in a multi-ethnic church family? And so I want to remind you, as we are nearing the end of these series, we're really trying to learn alongside each other. And so these memory challenges, I think, 
if you feel ready for them, I really want to encourage you to do them. So if you don't have those genres down, work on those that we did today. I would really love you to memorize the key kingdoms of the Bible and also those key events on our timeline. We're going to keep visiting those over the next week. Really, the hope is that at the end, in like 10 minutes, you could tell the whole story of the Bible, and we think those pieces help you. There are resources on our website to help you with that. We have a picture of that bookshelf. We have a kingdoms list under kingdoms, and we also have the timeline. We have it drawn out and we have it in list format, whatever way your brain works best. And if you would like to come up and model that and be brave, remember we have prizes for kingdoms or timeline, please let me know after the service. So in closing, as I was pondering all these things, I thought about the importance of receiving the Holy Spirit and the importance of the of the Holy Spirit to our daily lives as Christians. I thought about the trajectory of our church in our area and been having lots of meetings with other pastors, not only from our city, but from the entire region. And the things that the Lord continues to speak about the future has to do with a coming revival of love. Now, this looks completely different than maybe what you've seen or what you would associate with the word revival. I don't think it's a, an accident or a mistake that our friend, pastor, father, apostolic leader, Gaylord Enns is in our church. And we have learned much about what it looks like to love. We've got a lot more to learn. Jesus challenges his followers, and we are his followers, to love our enemies. That is really difficult, to love your enemy. It's a lot easier to love your spouse or your kids or someone that's like you or that agrees with you. But what would it look like for us as Jesus followers to actually begin to love the people around us, to love our actual neighbors, to love people in our city, though they are not living for Jesus and look completely different? Well, you might say, well, that love is not in me. And I would agree because it's not in me either. We can't conjure up this kind of love. And so where do we go? We go to Romans 5.5 5, that explains, Paul explains to us that the Holy Spirit has poured out God's love into our hearts. It's been already given to us. And as long as we're continuing to receive his love, we can give it away. We can't give away what we haven't received from the Lord. This is not about you working harder. This is about you and me surrendering more. So that means as we think about the Holy Spirit, we've got to position ourselves to receive more of his love. More of his power. And that really starts by being filled by the Holy Spirit. So now, let me explain to those of you maybe who are new to the faith or you're just checking out Jesus and you're kicking the, the tires, that there is a moment where you surrender to Jesus. We call it conversion, but it's where you enter his family. You surrender completely. You say, yes, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior and my Lord, and I'm going to follow you. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit comes and seals that work of God, and he begins to dwell in you. And we believe that he doesn't ever leave you. It's not like the Old Testament where in Psalm 51, David's like, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. We don't have to worry about that. It's our deposit and our guarantee of forever life with Jesus. 
So he doesn't leave us humans with free will. But because we have free will, we oftentimes close off whole rooms and parts of our heart that we don't want to let the Holy Spirit influence aspects of our life. So think about him moving into a home that is in your heart, right? Let's begin to be literal for a second. It's okay. God won't mind. And he's moved in, but there's some spots that you're like, yeah, you can hang out here in the living room, but you're not going to the bedroom. And you're not for sure going to the garage or into that, that one, sp- no, 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 not there. I'll give you access here, but I'm not going to surrender that there. And we close him off to a small space in our life. He doesn't leave. And if the Holy Spirit's influence is not growing in me, then I'm probably not giving him more and more room. And I want to just say, okay, Lord, you're right. I'll let you in here. I don't have to clean it up in order to open the door. I just say, okay, come and help me clean it up. And so I think about being filled with the Holy Spirit as opening every door, cabinet, secret compartment to my life and saying, okay, come invade every square inch of my life. And he comes and he fills my life, my heart. Does that make sense? It's a new analogy for me. Oftentimes we think about being filled with the Holy Spirit as being something that goes like this. And somehow we leak. But I think being filled with the Holy Spirit is all about surrender. It's all about inviting the Holy Spirit to have more of me. And to do what he wants. Laying down my will and saying, your will be done. Does that make sense? And when I surrender to him, he fills me up. And the more room I make in my heart and my life for him, he rushes in and he starts bearing his fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he gives me power to live my life and love to love others more than ever before. And so sometimes when I ask him to fill me and I surrender, there's new spiritual gifts he gives me or you. He could give you perhaps an experience that helps you know that he's moving. I'm a crier. Some people shake. Some people laugh. All sorts of different responses to the Holy Spirit, but you don't have to have any of them or all of them or none of them because we're all created differently. And as he fills us up, he will always bear fruit in our lives. And other times I surrender and I don't, I get maybe a sense of peace, which I believe is oftentimes the way that the Lord shows me he's working. I don't see much until later when I go, wait a second, I'm not struggling with those things anymore. Oh, well, I've gotten breakthrough in that area. Oh, I, I'm loving God's word more. Oh, I'm loving others more. Oh, this feels pretty great. And we see the fruit later. And so as we close, if you'd stand, prayer team, if you'd come forward, thanks for being so patient with us. We had a lot to cover in the book of Acts and you were fantastically focused this morning. I'm so proud of you, church. And if you're on the live stream, way to hang in there. No matter how many coffees you had to drink when you were watching. (laughs) I just believe that the Holy Spirit wants more from us, more room in our hearts. And so I'm gonna pray a quick prayer and just invite him to come and do that. But if you'd like to come and receive prayer and, 
and surrender with one of our prayer team. We've got prayer team people here. I've also got, there's also staff and others who could come forward right now as well. But we just want to pray with you and believe that as you just surrender afresh to God, he's going to fill you up. So Holy Spirit, thank you that everything that you do, you honor our will. And we want to give you more this morning. Holy Spirit, come and fill me up. Just show me where I need to turn from my ways, my selfish ways, and follow you. Show me where I've hidden parts from my life and, and I need to just allow you to come in and do your work. I just bless you, Lord. I thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just fill us right now. Cause us to step out into a new place of experiencing you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for coming. Hopefully I'll see you between 4 and 8 downtown at 5th Street. Otherwise, have a great week.